Hello everyone. Welcome to our podcast to mark Black History Month. It's an opportunity to celebrate the contribution of Black people to our society and the theme is saluting our sisters. So an additional opportunity to celebrate the unique contribution of our Black female psychiatrists. Our focus today is on racism and equity. We know that according to the NHS Medical Workforce Race Equality Standard Report, 41.9% of the medical workforce in England are from minority ethnic background. The GMC also reported in 2022 that international medical graduates were the largest proportion of new doctors entering the workforce. And these are the doctors most likely to report that they have been discriminated against. So it is important that we tackle racism and discrimination. Racism has an impact on our well-being and increases the risk of not just common mental health problems like depression, but also severe mental illness such as psychosis. I will be facilitating this session and I'm Dr. Uju Ubuchuku. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and medical director for quality at Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. I have been in the UK for a long time, some 27 years. And thinking back now, I remember arriving in 1996 to join my husband who had arrived a few months earlier. I was heavily pregnant and had my son like two months later and straight away trying to adjust a new environment and new baby without the support that I would normally have was difficult. I am Nigerian and back home in Nigeria we're used to having a lot of support following childbirth. I had my second child three years later and my daughter was only four months when I started my postgraduate training in psychiatry. Again, it was quite hard adjusting to starting training with a young baby. But we are all where we are now, often because of the support that we have received along the way. The support we've received from family, from friends and colleagues. And when we talk about racism and discrimination, majority of us international med medical graduates have witnessed and experienced it in one shape or the other. So today, we'll talk about some of those experiences, what can be done about it, and also the support that we have received along the way. We are joined today by Dr. Itai Matambike, who is a consultant forensic psychiatrist. He completed his Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery in Zimbabwe in 2000, then completed his postgraduate training in Nottingham, attaining a CCT Forensic Psychiatry and Master of Medical Sciences in Clinical Psychiatry in 2011. Itai worked as a forensic psychiatrist at Rampton High Secure Hospital and became a clinical lead and subsequently associate medical director at North Healthcare. He was appointed as executive medical director at Northamptonshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust in 2020, and he continues to practice 
as a clinician alongside his executive role. Itai, welcome. We are also joined by Dr. Mona Lisa Quento, who is a consultant psychiatrist. She has worked in the NHS and in the independent health sector. Mona Lisa is passionate about education, well-being, equity, and inclusion. She has held several undergraduate and postgraduate educational leadership roles in a number of universities, NHS trusts, and the college. She has been actively involved in several college committees and also a CASC examiner and chair of the General Adult Specialty Advisory Committee and an equality champion. She has also been involved in several widening participation initiatives, promotion activities, as well as recruitment campaigns such as Choose Psychiatry. She was a member of the Tackling Racism in the Workplace Working Group, which worked on the guidance for the Act Against Racism campaign. Mona Lisa, you're welcome. Okay, so I'll start with you, Mona Lisa, because I know that you were also involved in organizing a survey of Black psychiatrists in the UK on racism and discrimination. Could you tell us some of the key findings and your reflections on it? And I have mentioned Black psychiatrists. I, some people might not know that we have an association of Black psychiatrists. So if you may, it would also be good for our listeners to hear a little bit about the association of Black psychiatrists. So over to you, Mona Lisa. Thank you. I just wanted to just say briefly about the Association of Black Psychiatrists in the UK. Um, it was an, uh, an association that came together in 2020. And part of its objective was that it was realized that there were a lot of good practice of networking and support, but that were happening in isolated silos all around the country. And there was a need to have a collective space where Black psychiatrists came together to support one another, a safe psychological space where people could share their experiences, mentor and support one another, and also opportunity to harness, you know, the skills and knowledge, innovation that would actually contribute to, you know, a better delivery of care to our patients. Since our inception in 2020, it feels as if we've been on like rocket fuel because it's been amazing to see the good work that the various members are doing collectively together to allow one another to actually flourish in their workspaces and also support people who come newly into the UK to kind of have that network or safe space where they can seek support and actually get or, you know, day-to-day -day guidance or even periodic support as they try to navigate the pathway in their career. So um, it's been a blessing, you know, trying to be part of that. I, I like to call it a movement, but uh, it's been a long time coming. And I think it's a realization of, you know, the hard desire of many Black psychiatrists and the way that we can also work with the college to try and uh, look at experiences of black psychiatrists and actually have black psychiatrists also involved in the college and be feel 
part of the college as well and feel part of the healthcare system, which they contribute so much to. So that's in a nutshell what the um, Association of Black Psychiatrists uh, UK try to do. And we do that through various avenues like webinars, initiatives and development initiatives like support and mentoring, you know, uh, educational conferences and events that we run, not just for professionals, but also involving patients and the general public. More about promoting the message about, you know, mental health being accessible to all our ways we can actually campaign to make things more accessible through our services that are provided in healthcare. In terms of the survey, I'll just quickly run through um, the survey. The survey was done in December 2020, and it sought to do a cross-sessional survey of not just uh, members of the ABP UK, which is Association of Black Psychiatrists UK, but also reach out to other peer networks of um, Black psychiatrists. It was a semi-structural self-report questionnaire and an open invitation over a six-week period for people to just respond to questions around their experiences in the workplace. Overall, there were about um, 109 responses, and it was a, a good split between consultants, uh, SAS doctors, and trainees. So it almost felt like a reasonable three-way split with some here and there. But what was also noted was that there was an equal gender split of um, almost an equal gender split, 50.5 to 49.5 of males uh, responded to the survey. So I get onto the quick findings. Quick findings, 44% of respondents had experienced bullying in the workplace. About 60% of those who had experienced bullying did not report their concern. And what they had cited was a major, major barrier to not escalating their concern was lack of confidence in the trust processes that dealt with the kind of um, behavior that they experienced. Even 58% uh, of those who had reported their experience of bullying felt their concerns were not addressed. More than half of the respondents, about 58%, experienced microaggression from colleagues, and 75%, that is about three-fifths of those respondents who experienced microaggression did not feel that they had the support of their manager to address those concerns. So for us, it's a significant number from the people who had responded. Uh, about more than two-thirds experienced racist comments from their patients, and a third of those who had experienced racism also did not feel that they had the required support from their line managers to uh, challenge those behaviors. Now, with every negative experience, you would actually have to look at the impact on the people who are, you know, experiencing such behaviors. More than one in two reported that the experience had a negative impact on their mental well-being. Twenty-two percent reported that. That's about a, you know, like twenty-two percent is about a fifth reported that their experiences had an impact on their work performance. And for us, what was a bit concerning was that one in three had considered leaving their jobs due to the discriminatory experience that they had at work. Um, I think for us, you know, what we were keen was not just to have quantitative responses, but also to look at qualitative responses, just to have an idea 
what were the examples of um, barriers to reporting bullying and harassment? What did the what the site was lack of clarity about an awareness of the available policies? Of concern to them was the fear of repercussion and the impact on their career. The lack of confidence that the formal processes also addressed the concerns. Examples of microaggression were comments about the food they brought in for lunch, disparaging remarks about their country of origin, ignoring their comments they have made in favor of those from a white colleague, dismissing their concerns about discrimination. There was one poignant one about the clothes they had worn to work with describes as pajamas. Another one had written that um, a consultant supervisor had constantly reminded the respondent how lucky she should feel living and working in the UK in comparison to how difficult he assumed his life would have been, or the respondent's life would have been back in the country of origin. And the person who had responded said this was far from the case because the person actually had a more privileged life before migrating to the UK. There were issues about staff not refusing to take on tasks and questioning clinical judgment and sometimes going against clinical you know, um, advice. And lastly, you know, the bits about ordering, I would just give one or two examples, being excluded from meetings, both formal and informal, uh, not being included in service changes and discussions that could affect their practice, um, the room going suddenly quiet when they arrived, and using jokes and terminologies that they found difficult to understand. And, you know, this is a nutshell was one, some of the findings. I'm trying to summarize the very huge amount of evidence that we got from the survey, but obviously it was poignant, you know, very sad reading. Mm. And I could say as a clinician resonated, I resonated with some of the experiences that had been shared, you know, in terms of, um, you know, like the opportunity to contribute and whether your comments were being taken into context and a couple about microaggression that you experience daily about, you know, being reminded about migrating to the country and getting better opportunities, which in my case was um, a bit humorous considering I was born in the UK, but I schooled in a different. So it just showed the power of assumptions mm-hmm. and how they could, you know, like impact on how you perceive people and, you know, sometimes being corrected when you make comments. So for me, you know, overall felt poignant reading, but also getting that in huge numbers mm-hmm. was really almost sad reading for us. And I'll, I'll leave it at that because Itai can come in and comment on other things. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Monalisa. That was a really helpful summary. And what stood out for me was the the feeling that that if you spoke up and reported that nothing would be done, those were not having that support at all. That really stood out. And also what you mentioned about sometimes suggestions being ignored. A lot of us have experienced that. You know, sometimes you might be in a meeting and suggestion your suggestion as a black person might be ignored. However, when the same suggestion is brought up by somebody from a different ethnicity, it's then seen as, 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 as a good idea. So that really resonated with me. Thank you for that. And Ita, if I may bring you in to share your reflections on some of these findings. 
Ah, thank you. Uh, so I, I think um, it, the survey itself made some very difficult reading, uh, particularly some of the free text uh, comments. Um, one of the things that I find is that microaggressions are sometimes very difficult uh, to ascribe uh, as racist behavior. So you you'll hear comments like, um, where you're really from, I mean, originally. Now, um, in an investigation, you know, it can be very, very difficult to, you know, um, pinpoint that, you know, as a racist comment. Uh, but I think sometimes it's the way some someone makes you feel, someone makes you feel like you don't belong. Uh, and those are some of the, you know, uh, microaggressions which have a really weathering impact uh, on people from an ethnic minority background. And they are commonplace, um, you know, right across the NHS and, um, you know, other sort of uh, independent health um, care uh, settings. Um, and often the challenge is that, um, you know, when these behaviors are reported uh, and uh, investigators, um, investigations uh, take place, uh, the perpetrators almost uh, often robustly deny them as, you know, racist connotations whilst expressing, you know, righteous indignation about being labeled as racist. Uh, and, you know, after a very kind of draining, you know, investigative process, um, you know, which uh, often comes up with sort of inconclusive uh, findings, um, you know, it creates an ill feeling amongst you know, the victim who has, you know, suffered these microaggressions uh, and uh, almost uh, sort of ostracizes them uh, from, you know, colleagues uh, and perpetrators almost, you know, have an effect of kind of rallying, um, you know, other individuals behind them, um, you know, to, to sort of further target and bully, um, you know, people who report uh, these behaviors. Uh, so there's a real sort of, you know, call to action for organizations to, uh, you know, demonstrate uh, greater bravery, really, in, in tackling these issues. And um, I think it will be good for people to sort of start to uh, adopt the kind of act against racism toolkit, um, you know, as a kind of formal mechanism uh, for uh, organizations to um, uh, to kind of, you know, make wholesale changes and, you know, how they deal with um, racist behavior. I also wanted to touch on, you know, um, you know, some of the comments that I saw in the, um, you know, in the survey, now, particularly where there's a kind of uh, unequal power dynamic between a trainee and a um, consultant supervisor. Uh, and the challenge that ethnic minority trainees have in raising concerns about their clinical supervisors is often a fear that, you know, negative attitudes towards them uh, by influential people uh, can affect their training uh, and successful completion of their training. So this kind of leads to, um, you know, less reporting uh, of some quite un unacceptable behaviors. And trainees feeling really, really isolated, their training experiences uh, is really affected by the by this and their, their confidence in, you know, remaining, you know, within the NHS becomes uh, a real challenge. Uh, and I think um, one of the things that, you know, uh, needs to be sort of looked into is, you know, how we offer uh, that, you know, greater safety for uh, people of, you know, protected characteristics to 
uh, be able to, you know, complete their training um, and not feel, you know, victimized in any way. Uh, because in this, you know, the diversity of, um, you know, clinician often as to the richness of the sort of clinical experience. And, you know, we need to, um, you know, as an NHS really kind of focus on this issue and uh, bring about change. Uh, so those are sort of my reflections on, you know, the survey. I think this is a very important piece of work. Uh, it needs to be shared. You'll find that even though the respondents are, you know, 109, um, you know, the experience is very, very, um, you know, common uh, across the NHS by, you know, uh, ethnic minority clinicians, not just doctors, but, you know, other clinicians as well. And I think it's important for us to raise the awareness and for us uh, to encourage, um, you know, uh, organizations to take action. Yeah, thank you for that. That's very good. Thank you. I like how you highlighted the impact it has uh, when people report it and it's investigated, actually, it has a significant impact on the person who is reporting it. And also you're um, highlighting the power differential between between trainees and and uh, consultants. We know that majority right now of our trainees are international medical graduates. So these are the, the people who will be suffering a lot of this uh, racism and, and discrimination. Thank you. So I'm going to come back to you, Itai. Uh, just saying that as an executive medical director, it'll be really good to hear from you what your journey has been like and how you have been able to to work in this role as a black ethnic uh, minority um, leader. Because a lot of people listening will be thinking, oh, that is a good role model. You know, wonder kind of challenges he may have had on, on the way and how he's overcome those those challenges. So do you mind just sharing a little bit about your journey mm -hmm. as a, a leader? I think I'll start by pointing out uh, that, you know, my, um, you know, journey as, um, you know, to, towards becoming an exec medical director uh, was sponsored by, you know, quite a lot of progressive white allies, um, you know, who uh, recognized potential in me uh, and uh, were prepared to look beyond the color of my skin and give me an opportunity to, um, you know, show what, you know, I'm capable of doing. Uh, and uh, obviously the rest is history. Um, that, of course, doesn't, you know, just come with, you know, a, a kind of array of positive experiences. And along the way, uh, there will be some quite, um, you know, challenging experiences. And uh, some of it is difficult to uh, ascribe as racism that I mentioned, you know, microaggressions earlier. Um, but one of the things that I found, you know, just looking at uh, very senior, uh, you know, uh, ethnic minority leaders uh, is that the reduced numbers, particularly when I started out, uh, made it very difficult for you to have a peer group of, you know, people with, you know, uh, similar lived experiences that you could, uh, you know, garner some form of support from. Uh, I'm pleased to note that that landscape is changing. So it can be very lonely at the top when, you know, there are fewer people of, you know, an ethnic background. Uh, and sometimes, um, you know, out of sheer ignorance, you know, um, there's some people who, you know, may not... Um, 
you know, realize that, you know, they are, um, the ethnicity um, does actually uh, come with, um, you know, unconscious biases, which, you know, influences, you know, some of the decisions that they make about various things. Um, and sometimes it can be very, very difficult to be, you know, um, the one person who is constantly, you know, uh, reminding your colleagues of, you know, the need to consider, um, you know, the sort of uh, ethnicity of, um, you know, either uh, members of staff or uh, our patients in, you know, the overall decision making. Um, one of the other things that, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, senior execs uh, tend to suffer from, especially when they uh, are starting new roles. And this goes for, you know, both, you know, white and ethnic minorities. Uh, and it's the imposter syndrome. Um, however, one of the things that I've noticed just talking to uh, and a, a lot of, you know, colleagues from, you know, an ethnic minority background is that there is just a general tendency, um, you know, to to counter this imposter syndrome by working, you know, 10 times harder than, you know, your, your white counterparts. And this can lead to burnout. This can lead to a lot of frustration. And this can lead to, you know, people, you know, deciding not to stay in those roles. Um, and I think um, this is often, you know, made worse by uh, a general tendency for, you know, people to feel, you know, more questioned uh, about their, you know, credibility. Um, and uh, for people who are of a relatively young age and, you know, uh, just so happen to be a very different skin color from, you know, the rest of their counterparts, um, you know, there's, there's a, a sort of um, you know, unsaid belief that they they might not have you know the requisite you know competence to to hold those positions, and sometimes you know um, you know colleagues have reported uh, that you know that you know white uh, fragility, um, which can be very emotionally draining uh, for um, senior ethnic minority leaders, because it's often you know presented as projection. Um, you know, uh, it's often presented as, um, you know, things like, oh, the angry black man or the angry black woman. Um, and, and sometimes it's not, you know, um, and a lot of that, um, you know, tends to have you know, a significant weathering effect on, um, you know, on senior execs and, you know, and other senior managers. But I think, um, there's, certainly light at the end of the tunnel. I think when I look around now, uh, there are quite a lot of, you know, ethnic minority leaders who are coming up uh, and, you know, their voice, their shared experiences, um, you know, is starting to be listened to. Uh, and I think one of the, you know, one of the beauties of that is that, you know, we tend to take our own experiences, you know, uh, into our kind of compassionate leadership style. Um, and, you know, make it easier for people who are coming up, um, you know, to feel more validated, to feel less uh, like imposters. Uh, so so I think we've got a job of work to do. You hold a senior position and you're from an ethnic, you know, minority background. That kind of, you know, awareness of, you know, your own personal experiences as you've taken that journey up, um, up the chain will be very, very useful. Uh, for colleagues who are uh, seeking to get into leadership. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, that was really very clear. 
And I like that you mentioned imposter syndrome, because that's something that is quite common, particularly from a women perspective. Um, but I'll just ask you, just sticking with imposter syndrome, what advice would you give black minority leaders uh, who are getting into the role newly? What advice would you give them in terms of how to manage imposter syndrome? Okay, so first of all, uh, one needs to remind themselves that, you know, if you've made an application uh, and you've gone through a competitive selection process, uh, and you have been appointed to a role, uh, then, you know, you're there because of merit, uh, more so for uh, a little um, ethnic minority uh, sort of um, incumbents because uh, often they don't have that bigger network, um, you know, of senior leaders who, you know, will be able to speak highly of them, you know, in a selection process. Uh, so they're doing this all on their own, uh, and they're there because they deserve to be there. And I think it's having that self-compassion uh, right at the outset uh, to, you know, to remind yourself that, look, you're good enough. Um, you're there because you're good enough. Uh, and having that confidence that, you know, when people are questioning you, uh, obviously, it's very important to always take stock uh, of whatever feedback you get, whether it's positive or negative. But, um, you know, once you've sort of looked at that um, and you know that, you know, some of that questioning is uh, unjustified, um, you really just need to press on, um, you know, and, you know, do what's right. Um, I think that the risk that we have uh, is that a lot of ethnic minority leaders, you know, make that difficult decision not to stay in leadership roles. Um, and when they do that, um, that that reduces the pool of, you know, peers that they can have uh, to support them uh, and, you know, uh, work through some of the challenges. So that's the first thing I'll say. I think have that self-confidence, have that self, um, you know, compassion uh, and seek uh, support from mentors, seek support uh, from coaches, uh, because sometimes you just need someone to hold up a mirror. Uh, and help you process some of your experiences uh, so that you can sort of think clearly and make the right decisions. Uh, so so there's a lot of that going on. I mean, people need to be aware of their own limitations and failures uh, because when you enter into a new role, you're bound to make mistakes. Uh, and when you do, that's not the end of the world because uh, a lot of learning comes from making mistakes. Uh, so people just need to cut themselves a little bit of snack, a slack. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, not, you know, catastrophize too much uh, and not, you know, flip onto the other end, which is, you know, being, you know, arrogant and dismissive and, um, you know, not being willing to learn. Uh, so I think there's, you know, finding that right balance uh, and, and sometimes mentorship and coaching can help you achieve that. Yeah. Thank you so much. So you've highlighted the importance of mentoring and coaching, but also what you said in the beginning about taking stock of the feedback and that self-belief and believing that we are we are good enough. So thank you. Thank you for that. If I may bring you in, Mona, um, Lisa, just your reflection. I'm aware that this Black History Month is about saluting our sisters. So can you share your reflections on everything we've been discussing about leadership and involving women from 
from uh, from your perspective as, as a female psychiatrist? Um, I just wanted to thank Itai for touching on so many themes in terms of um, experiences of uh, um, Black leaders, because um, I think we can look at leadership in terms of healthcare from a position of situational leadership or and positional leadership. And I guess every doctor, you know, it's imperative that we all stand as clinical leaders in the workplace. Now, in terms of my journey as a black woman, I tend to always say I'm a black female psychiatrist and I'm proud to be an international medical graduate. Um, what has been the journey? I think for me, the thing that stood out most was not having enough people that were that looked like me that I could resonate with in terms of my journey. And, you know, recently we are having a number of black people and other women, because I guess intersectionality plays a role in terms of you're a black woman and there are also other experiences that you have. Um, one thing that actually resonates with me as well is from other experiences others have shared with me is the kind of assumptions that are made for females in terms of, one, you might not necessarily be interested in leadership or you might not be capable of leadership because traditionally it is also assumptions are made that you have so many competing uh, factors that would deter you from wanting to strive to hold those positions in terms of family and other commitments. And as such, uh, it can be difficult to actually access networks also that provide that mentorship or the stretch opportunities for you to also show what you can do in terms of service development. Um, in the journey, I guess we, Itai has also talked about very positive experiences. The truth is that when you've had, as a female and as a black person, when you've had growth opportunities and mentorship and development, it's almost like the sky is a limit because you have access to all this, you know, some support as well in terms of coaching and mentoring, somebody that can hold a mirror to you to show you what you're doing and also to have a way of stretching some of the ideas you have that can actually work and show you that it is possible if you can make realistic adjustments to whatever priorities that you have. And I think in recent years, it's been good to see a number of people kind of that you can relate with and share. And I guess, you know, it's not just related to gender. I guess that's the thing about intersectionality. You don't just, it's not a sum of three parts, but you have to look at how the combination of whatever issues that you are, the characteristics, how they influence your experience through a system. So um, my own journey in the positions where I've had people who have encouraged and presented opportunities there have been um, good things that have come from it, including things that have translated to better care delivery at work. I think what people have to understand is that when you encourage staff who work in the healthcare system, encourage 
innovation, ideas, provide facilities to improve service. Not only does the workplace benefit in terms of staff experience, also patients do benefit. And the reality is that the healthcare that people access, people of different races and ethnic groups actually access care. And clinicians should really be representative of the aspects of service development that is required to be able to show, you know, good delivery or very excellent delivery of services. So if you can harness those ideas, innovation and experience of the people on ground, how can you really say that you have actually improved your service or people have contributed to service development if you can't encourage those ideas? So um, I will just end on a general note. It has been good and bad, but you know the very supportive experiences have led to many more things happening and has also given me the focus on other ladies because I actually belong to an informal female network that actually also given a burning desire to provide like a psychological space, but for women currently to be able to support one another and also think about the up and coming generation because we have to plan for the future. How much do we create that supportive environment that would encourage female leaders in the health uh, healthcare workforce? So for me, it's a win-win in terms of no matter how difficult the experience is, one, there is learning, two, there is opportunity to make uh, contribute to making things better for the generation or the leaders that are coming forward. Thank you so much, Monanessa. Thank you. I like the fact that you've brought in our patients. And actually what we're discussing is that everything that we're doing, if you look after the staff, look after the doctors, look after doctors from minority groups, you benefit our patients. And it just reminds me of the common saying that we keep repeating that there is no quality without equality. That's really good to always remember that. If we can then move on. So I'm going to ask both of you. So generally, we've been discussing about issues about racism. We've gone through the the survey that was carried out by the Association of Black Psychiatrists. So just wondering, what, what are your thoughts then? You know, what, what, what do you think um, in terms of looking at structural and systemic factors? What, what impact has it got on, on, on equity? You understand Itai? Okay. Um, so I think, um, one of the things that, um, sort of, uh, ethnic minority leaders need to understand is that, um, sometimes, you know, uh, racism is not overt, uh, and. Uh, it can be so subtle uh, that it's almost yeah, impossible to identify. Uh, and there's some people who are very skilled at using uh, the system to frustrate you and sort of, um, you know, get you to a point where, you know, you come across as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that, that sort of angry black woman or angry black woman. Um, and, um, you know, my advice uh, in situations like that is that one always needs to um, try and unlock doors instead of, you know, attempting to break them down. Um, because 
um, where you find uh, that, you know, the system, you know, uh, and the structure is uh, stacked against you. What one needs to do in situations like that is to is to build uh, your network uh, of allies, of people who, you know, uh, will be able to share your vision and present your vision in a manner uh, that, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, flips everything on its head such that other people are speaking for you rather than you uh, being very directive and authoritative. Uh, and that, that sort of use of soft power can be, you know, extremely uh, or tremendously effective at, you know, realizing your, your goals and vision. Uh, and ultimately, you know, if you are coming from, you know, a good place, which is, you know, really around um, quality improvement, um, you know, uh, equality and, you know, uh, diversity of, um, you know, staff, you know, purpose, etc. cetera, uh, then your, your logic uh, will almost always be uh, undeniable. Uh, and it's really just about strategizing how you present uh, your argument and how you present your vision or how you, um, you know, have that co-production, um, you know, that get a grassroots engagement uh, to to sort of deliver on uh, the things that you want to do, um, and it 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 really does need one to be uh, quite politically savvy, you know, uh, learning how to read the room, learning how to uh, appeal to you know people's uh, interests and um, you know uh, things that really concern them, um, and it can be a journey. It can be a, you know, it can be a journey. Some, sometimes you have to concede. Sometimes you have to choose. You have to pick your battles and uh, and decide what's, you know, what's worth really sort of uh, pursuing and, you know, what's not. What's, you know, what's urgent and important and what, you know, can wait, um, you know, and what do you need to focus your energy on uh, in terms of um, getting things done. And I think that find for me, that sort of, um eases quite a lot of you know uh frustration uh amongst uh ethnic minority leaders thank you so much itaya and um lisa mother lisa if i may bring you in just to share your thoughts on how structural and systemic factors impact on on equity okay i think first what we have to look at is that the structural and systemic factors is almost like the material conditions or the environment that we find ourselves. So how does the system present itself that not everybody can have the kind of access that they need in keeping with their needs? And that's the way I understand it. So how does it present in healthcare? We can look at it as differential access to education and training opportunities. What we have is that, you know, most of the, you know, the quantitative evidence that we have is that, you know, the proportion of uh, trainees from ethnic minority background, you know, who don't actually, you know, like progress in their training or um, exam outcomes show differential attainment. And I, I guess it's almost asking the question, what's causing that at the back of it and how can it be addressed? Some people in the survey talked about uh, being in a training post, you know, those were some of the things that I couldn't bring out because I was asked for a summary. But some of the comments in the survey that we should showed that some trainees were not allowed to access their education and training opportunities. 
some people were put under pressure to do more service work, service line work or meet service needs as opposed to exploring their educational opportunities. Um, another example is access to power in terms of networking, mentoring, stretch opportunities. You kind of find that the, you know, less people from BME backgrounds, especially trainees, you know, they find it they're less likely to have access to people in terms of talent management or even to provide them with stretch opportunities that will show what they can do that can make them, you know, more eligible to actually apply for posts and opportunities to actually also develop and make mistakes and fail and whether the system is kind to someone from an ethnic minority background when those mistakes are made and how much support they get. Another thing I wanted to touch upon, Paul, is that, you know, what evidence has shown us is that the more difficult, hard-to-feel posts or very challenging posts are filled by people who are more from an ethnic minority background. And we know with if there are also difficulties in being able to access support, that makes the person more likely not to succeed in that role, be open to disciplinary processes or actually not be appointed in the role or leave the job because of the impact on their mental health. So, you know, it's also looking at the system because the system itself shows that there are opportunities, but how do those opportunities look like and do they offer that environment for someone from who is Black? to grow and succeed in the system. Um, lastly, I, of course, I have to touch on this, the fact that there are more disproportionate referrals, either for, you know, like to the GMC, we have evidence, but also some soft intelligence and feedback also suggests that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are more likely to go through disciplinary processes, uh, maybe internal and how they're treated and, you know, even from the evidence from non-medical background show that um, non-medical data show that they are most likely to uh, get harsher outcomes from disciplinary um, hearings and processes. So in that way, it just shows, you know, like it's almost like the system is set out to almost feels like it's against you. You know, you have a difficult job. You don't have much support. You don't flourish in the job if you're lucky enough. You know, I don't want to paint a very difficult picture, but it's either you leave or if you stay, you don't succeed. Or if you're a clinician, you get into more difficulty and without the support, then you face disciplinary process, then you don't flourish. And, you know, it, it almost feels like it's an uphill battle. There are still good experiences, like we say, we always balance it, but the healthcare service is a place for all to flourish. The healthcare service that we we offer to patients, they come in every color, gender, you know, nationality, faith, belief, disabled, non-disabled. It's a rich kind of um, um, set of people that we offer service to. And truly, as clinicians, we have to understand the needs of the patients that we want to offer care to. And how can we truly deliver that kind of high-quality care if clinicians and 
you know, professionals involved in that care being delivered are not in places where they can affect change. They can advocate for patients and influence change and make sure that the patients get the care that they need. So I think that the structure and the system that we we actually work in has to adapt to actually accommodate the needs of the people who can make the system better. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mona Lisa. And it brings me to the last question, which um, Itai had talked, touched on initially, but we know that our college is doing something to tackle racism. But from your perspectives, how can this college campaign act against racism? How can it actually support organizations to tackle these issues? We've talked a lot, a lot about various issues, but how can this campaign support organizations to do this work? Itai, do you want to go first? So Mona Lisa, do you want to go first? I, I, I can uh, go first if you like. Um, Thank you. So, uh, uh, at uh, at the recent congress, I you know got an opportunity to talk um, you know to the people who've developed the toolkit uh, for you know act against racism at college, uh, and a lot of you know the steps you know uh, that are included within this toolkit are real practical uh, you know things that you can put in place in your organisation uh, to try and tackle. Um, the kind of disparity in terms of opportunities that Mona Lisa uh, um, mentioned earlier, uh, but also, um, you know, become really honest within your organization uh, about the actual state of play. Uh, because often, you know, organizations get into this, um, you know, trap where they are um, almost desperate to project themselves as, um, you know, a, a non-racist organization, uh, that, uh, what then tends to happen is that, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, over-processing of, uh, a data in a manner that projects them in positive light. But, um, some of these conversations are very awkward and difficult to have, uh, but the more we can be open and honest uh, and we can have those frank conversations within organizations about, you know, what is the actual experience uh, of our staff, you know, the, you know, the better chance we can of actually improving systems uh, which benefit the patients and populations that we serve. Uh, so when you look at, um, you know, the Association of Black Psychiatrists, um, you know, survey findings, some of those stats are really quite disturbing. You know, uh, the extent in which uh, people feel bullied, uh, the extent in which, uh, to which people feel, um, you know, really worried about raising concerns because they're fearful of reprisals or, you know, uh, whatever negative consequence they uh, are likely to face. And these are actual experiences of people who are or who form part of the NHS workforce. Now, um, you know, uh, the good thing about that survey is that it doesn't sort of point to a particular trust, um, uh, but it points to, you know, uh, the experience of black psychiatrists across uh, the NHS and independent sector. Uh, and it's really important uh, for us to really take stock 
um, as leaders of you know these organizations uh, to to sort of try and improve that experience because we can't really uh, or realistically um, you know uh, engender compassionate uh, leadership if we are not uh, able to really understand the experience of the staff that we have on the ground. So it's um, I, I you know I, I'm a big proponent of um, you know this act against racism um, campaign, and I and and I wish more and more uh, organisations uh, adopt that toolkit and and, and implement it because uh, it will not only be important in terms of improving their staff's experience, but it will certainly be very very impactful in improving the experience of. Uh, the service users that access, uh, you know, services provided by that organization. Thank you. That was excellent. Thank you, Etai. And we all hear you, and I hope people listening to this will be taking it up and going back to the organizations and saying, have you registered? Have you joined the Act Against Racism campaign? Okay, if I hand over to you, Mona Lisa, for your, your thoughts. Uh, thank you, Joanna. Thank you, Itai, for um, your thoughts, sharing your thoughts. Being, well, for me, it was a privilege being part of the Tackling Racism in the Workplace Working Group to produce the guidance. And what really inspired me about, you know, contributing to this group was that there was an ethos by all involved that it was a time for action, not words. Um, if you look, you know, like when there is a difficult issue, like Itai has alluded to, that is quite sensitive. There are a lot of words, uh, almost like formative language. But people, when you ask for their honest feedback, which most times is anonymous because nobody wants to, like, want to say anything to upset. People feel that there is a, there's almost like a somewhat lack of tangible actions that can, you know, you can evidence to show what you're doing. So for, for me, particularly, one, the college is stepping out to have honest and sensitive conversation and promote that in organizations. From my understanding, we're the first college to use the appropriate language, racism. That is what discrimination that people experience and we need to call it what it is. Two, there are, there's an acknowledgement that people had various parts in their um, growth in terms of tackling such a, a, a an issue. So there is opportunity through the maturity metrics for you to start off, for you to be progress and for you to be at the you know, the end where you're doing so. So there is room for different areas in or, or a level of progress as you walk through. Three, the 15 actions are tangible. They are clear with examples of people, you know, case examples of people, who, initiatives who have looked at the objectives and with themes. So it's almost like organizations can just pick up the actions, pick up the toolkit and actually run with it. And four, which I feel something that is 
really important is that there is a glossary, almost like behaviors to avoid and, you know, things that are really important when you're starting to have the conversation. So the toolkit, the guidance is there. There is an, an invitation for trust to adopt this because, you know, there's been so much talk around tackling racism, tackling racial discrimination in the workplace, tackling differential experiences of the different groups in the workplace, you know, because uh, although we are all uh, uh, the BAME uh, ethnic minority group is a wide heterogeneous group, it has also been acknowledged that amongst the BAME group, there are also differential experiences of various level of discrimination. So, you know, with the toolkit, I could give an example. You know, organizations, be honest about data, be proactive, disaggregate your data. If there are things that don't match, seek to understand, seek reform. It's almost like you know, there are acts that are very tangible that, you know, if people are honest and can challenge themselves and put themselves out there, the conversation can be heard, had amongst people and action and behavior can flow. So I think that is what is quite um, um, very clear about the tackling, you know, Act Against Racism campaign and the tackling racism in the workplace guidance. It's very practical, the tangible actions and trust I invited to just sign up and, you know, there's support available for people to do this. And, you know, if leaders can just take that step, it will filter through to their organizations, to the grassroots, and the change can start. All it takes is for a couple of people to start the change and the domino effect, because good always triumphs, and it's just people taking that step. Um, lastly, you know, conversations are uncomfortable, but I always believe that with sincerity and almost humble and honest curiosity, people can learn about the experience of others and how it feels or the impact to be on the receiving end of such behaviors. And I believe that that will be the catalyst for people to start wanting to do things. There must be an honest curiosity and commitment for change. And I think that's possible because the case examples on the, you know, in the guidance has shown how that has worked for other trusts. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mona Lisa. Very well put. So we've come to the end. I just wanted to say really special thanks to Itai and Mona Lisa for taking out the time to talk about this. It is, like you've both said, a very difficult conversation to have. Most people don't want to talk about racism and discrimination, but I've always believed that when we have these conversations, we, it loses the power. So it loses the power it has. As, and, you know, so I encourage people to speak up and have these conversations. You've highlighted the importance of networking and supporting each other through mentoring and coaching. We've highlighted the importance of people developing some trust with their doctors so that they can report these issues and they are supported when this is investigated. And finally, we've talked about acts against racism and encouraging all organizations to do this. As you're listening, find out. Is your organization signed up or not? Get the right people involved so your organization can sign up. 
So again, thank you so much, Itai and, and Mona Lisa for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.